So this is actually lesson number 11 out of this book, The Conscience, dealing today with how should you calibrate your, your conscience. Uh, and of course that assumes, uh, and rightly so, that your conscience does need to be calibrated. And on occasion, we'll see today, it needs to be recalibrated, right? We act upon something, we find something in our life that needs to be drawn into a, a line with the Word of God more clearly, more precisely. We have examples throughout the Word of God. And we're able to do that. We're willing to do that. Why? Because we want the power of God. We want the fullness of God's Word, the completeness of it. We want the fullness of God's Spirit resting upon us. We want the confidence of knowing that we can respond because we have been changed. We're, we're responsive to the Word and to the leadership of God in any situation in our life. And of course, I, I mean that in a general way, but then specifics come into our life, don't they? Particular issues that we have to know how we feel about that, how we think about that, what our commitments are regarding a particular issue. We have to be familiar with the outcome, the, the influence that we have and exert on people, particularly if we're in leadership or if we're just taking care of our children or our family members or perhaps those who, who don't know Christ and they're looking at us, they're looking at our example. So it's just about knowing what we believe and why we believe it and being able to take people to God's Word and talk about that. So what should you do when your conscience isn't functioning accurately? Well, it assumes the position that, well, I'm first off, I'm open to that, that my conscience may not be functioning accurately. How would we do that? How does that even come into play? How does that become a reality to us? We be, how do we become aware of that? Yeah, it's usually specific to a particular issue at hand, a particular topic or whatever. And some of them can be very minor. Uh, we'll look at some today, uh, sort of a list. That some are minor and some are, uh, are quite, you know, they're bigger issues, much bigger issues that we look at. So it asks the question again, are we literally prepared to maintain a good conscience even if it's going to cost us? You've got to answer that question as well. Are we willing to do that even if it's going to cost us? Anybody have any experience with that? Maybe in the workplace, maybe with family relations or whatever? Have you? Anything to share this morning regarding that line? Oh, a hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a, uh, my youngest son just ran into something similar on the job where he takes measurements uh, that have to be recorded and have to be attested to and all that. And he was told, "Well, just, just put this down. Just, just write this down. Just estimate. Just guess." He said, "No, I, I don't feel good about that. I don't feel good about it." And he felt. So uneasy with it, he, he called me about it and said, you ever, you ever had anything like this? I said, yeah, yeah, I've had things like that. I've had people maybe who aren't as, uh, who aren't as specific perhaps about reporting, you know, hours or something, training hours or whatever, or uh, 
any kind of data, you know, that you deal with, you know, you can make data say pretty much what you want it to say if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're skilled in that area, you know. Uh, yeah, but it becomes a matter of, a matter of, of conscience. Uh, and then, of course, there are other things, uh, even doctrinal things that weigh on us sometimes. We don't really know for sure quite where we stand, and those questions have to be answered. But some of the issues that we face in our time deal with some pretty heavy topics like abortion, right? Uh, you say, well, how would, how would that work? What if, you're, what if your insurance company or something pays for that kind of a thing? And then you have, it raises the question, well, is that something that I want to be involved in? Do I feel good about doing business uh, with a company or with an organization that would support that? And certainly issues dealing with homosexuality, uh, issues of hate speech, okay? Sometimes our expression, our expressions in the Christian world in different places, and I think Canada would be a good place to look, are determined to be hate speech just by calling sin, sin calling it what it is, you know, and they'll have issues there that uh, rub other folks the wrong way. So you can't escape, escape this. You stand firm, and we're talking here about standing firm in the Word of God. When the Word of God has come to bear on your heart and mind regarding a particular issue, there's going to be some conflict, right? The, the light and the, the dark thing, the, the good versus evil, we can't ever get away from that. We often feel like in our modern day society that that's increasing. That's on the increase. It's becoming more and more noticeable. Uh, we're seeing uh, examples, it seems like every evening on the evening news about these types of things. And uh, they focus upon, a lot of times, Christians. They just come right out and say it, okay? Heard a guy say the other day on TV he enjoyed talking with people and interacting with people and involving himself in catharsis and all this. But he says, when I get one of those Christians that says, well, I can't do that because it's in the Bible, and they shut the door down, he says, then what do you do with that? He was, he was criticizing that, that you shouldn't just you know accept what the Bible says is true, and that's the end of the argument. You've got to be willing to go beyond that, I guess as if to say that you just might be wrong. Okay, and they don't understand perhaps the element of faith that's involved with that. That's who we are as Christians. We believe the Word of God. It doesn't mean that we turn our minds off. No, it means that our minds have been rightly formulated, illuminated, you know, solidified through the truth of God's Word. And that's critical to what we stand for, what we believe and know to be true as Christians. So we're dealing specifically now with this issue of the conscience and perhaps going against conscience, being able to calibrate our conscience or the temptation to go against our conscience, I should say. We go back and we look again at the phrase from Martin Luther when he was standing there at the Diet of Worms and he said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, Scripture and plain reason, he says, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I'm just pulling part of this statement out here. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. It's all filtered through the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, nothing that he's been accused of, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. That was his answer. God help me. Here I stand. 
So we go back and we look at his example. What was being attacked there? Justification by grace. Faith in the true and living God. The working of God's Holy Spirit and the power of his word through faith and repentance in the life of the believer apart from the Pope's decrees, apart from the directives of the church and those, both of those being uplifted and elevated over the power of the Word of God. And he says, no. Lying in the sand. Period. Can't, can't do it. Not going to do it. And it may cost me my life. But I can't do that. So we have to answer this question that we asked early. Are we prepared to maintain a good conscience even if it cost us? Even if it cost us. And many people are acting on their conscience and they're acting apart from the truth of God's Word. That is, they're standing on something that's not consistent with the truth of God's Word. A writer adds that it would be a shame to go to prison or to die for the sake of a misinformed conscience. Can you think of, well, you can think of other religions perhaps that take a... a a wrong view on certain doctrines and so forth, and they build much of their church process and ceremonies upon something that's really not even accurate, you know, from the Word of God. I can't help but think, and perhaps I mentioned, but the, there's some groups north of Cartersville that, uh, why do they, they, they take up the serpent? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I wonder how shocking it would be to them if you were able to sit them down and take them to their favorite passage to go to, as I've looked at this, is, uh, I don't have any relatives there or anything, but I just, just look at this. Mark 16. And you set them down and you talk about this. You know, this verse there, it talks about people taking up the serpent. Actually, it's Mark 16, 18, talking about true believers will be able to do that. I saw a piece uh on one of those news programs once about the folks. And they were at a church up in, up in Calhoun or somewhere up north of us. And they had quoted that scripture. And, uh, but where would they be if we were able to sit them down and say, now look, you realize that all of the evidence, okay, the most convincing evidence that we have regarding the book of Mark is that the book of Mark ends at verse 8. Okay, what goes on past verse 8, while some of it is, is true, or it's true rather, it's, it's, a, it's not something that's uh, not found in Scripture elsewhere, but to say that that is applicable to every Christian, in other words, that every Christian is going to be able to drink poison and not die and, and take up a, a serpent and not be bitten, that doesn't say that, okay? It's not there. It's not in the original text as far back as we can go. Uh, and if you read and study, you'll see if certain Bibles you got it, it's bracketed from verse 9 on down uh, because the best evidence says that Mark ends at verse 8. But they go to verse 18, was it? Verse 18, and pull that out and build uh, a pretty hefty doctrine upon that uh, to say nothing about the numbers of people who have died from being bitten by a snake during a church service, okay? Um, so, pretty grave from that example, isn't it? Yeah. And it could be even more grave with other examples if we're talking about doctrine, if we're talking about misunderstanding and uh, taking a wrong stand 
on our church doctrine. Do you listen to your conscience? Are you able to respond? Do you want to be involved in this calibration process? If you read the book, or you may even know from a sermon I know that MacArthur's preached where he talks about the flight back in 1984 of the Avianca airline out of Spain. You remember that? Or they were flying in Spain. I guess we had sold them the, the plane or something. I don't know because the information that came over the, the warning box, you know, the automatic voice that comes on, it says, pull up, pull up, was in English. And they're flying this plane, passenger plane, and they hear the voice. The pilot hears the voice that says, pull up, pull up. And the plane crashed, and they were able to get the, the black box out of the plane, and they could hear all of this. So they heard the automated voice coming on when their altitude dropped. It said, pull up, pull up. And then they heard the pilot say, shut up, gringo. And he reaches over, and he turns off the, uh, the warning system. He turned it off. And so what happened? You know, you're flying along, and... It's like that far side. A guy says, well, what's that mountain goat doing up here, you know? <laughs> Boom. Into a, and it killed everybody on the plane. 1984, uh, a true story. Because they ignored the warning system. They ignored it. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, that, that alarm, if you will, that, that bell that goes off inside of us is fairly subtle. You know what I'm saying? It's just a little something back there, you know, in Scripture that doesn't doesn't quite seem to add up or something that's challenging, something that we believe. And it's a, it's a subtle alarm. Do you hear that voice? Do you hear that alarm going off? Can you point to examples in your life where you've kind of reached over and shut off the alarm? Can you do that? Is it something perhaps that may deal with just, doesn't seem like a big deal, maybe it's just an attitude that we hold, or perhaps a, a commitment that we made that now all of a sudden that commitment seems just, man, it just it's just not working for me. I've got, I'm too busy. I can't do this yet. We did make a commitment. Anything along those lines. Or you're feeling that, that, that urge about, you know, becoming involved in something that you truly believe the Lord and His Word are leading you to do some ministry or whatever, and yet it's going to be a challenge. It's something you might not even feel like you're capable of doing, but yet you have this compulsion, this, this spiritual compulsion, this pulling, if you will. Listen, the Holy Spirit is very real, working within us, getting our attention, bringing the Word of God to bear on our life. That's a very real thing. And if we're not sensitive to that, if we're not listening to that, if we're not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, and if we're not doing those things to keep the, uh, the competition out of our life, that pull us away, that, that want to hijack our affections, if you will, in this life, then we miss the boat. Or we get started, we wind up boarding that boat way too late, if you follow my analogy. So, things that we want to look at. The world wants to silence your conscience. It doesn't want you dealing with your conscience. It wants to turn it off. But the conscience... And thank God, because it is a great gift, remains our automatic warning system. Don't turn it off. If you do, you're never going to be able to recalibrate. It's not going to happen. You're going to fail right out of the chute. Paul says that the conscience can be calloused 
And that comes from ignoring it, right? We've looked at this, a number of scriptures. It can be calloused. The conscience can be wounded. Okay, it can be wounded. And the conscience can be seared. You can go back to 1 Corinthians 8.10 and, and, and verse 12 for those first two. And then 1 Timothy 4.2 talking about a seared conscience, which we looked at at length. And I mentioned them here just to let you know that the conscience needs some attention. It is responsive. Okay, it can and will be affected. It can be changed. It can be recalibrated. I like what Jonathan Edwards said, a quote from him and from our book. It says, the way to keep the conscience tender is to the utmost simply resist sin. Oh, revelation, right? It's not that easy, is it? That's something that you have to determine to do every single morning when you reach over and turn the alarm off and your feet hit the floor. I don't know what your manner is, but sometimes I just sit there on the side of the bed and thinking about my day and what the day holds. Who's in charge of that day? Am I going to be responsive? Am I literally going to allow everything that comes into my life to be funneled through the Word of God as I've come to understand it? Is that my direction? I hope you're learning like me and not the hard way. That that's, the best, uh, that's the best approach to take. That's a good way to start your day. Doesn't mean nothing's going to happen. Doesn't mean there aren't going to be any challenges for you that day. But it does mean you'll be solidified in your approach. You're leaning upon the Word and the presence of God in your life. You'll be amazed at what happens. You'll be amazed. We're to listen to our conscience. But it asks the question, can we always listen to our conscience? Let your conscience be your guide. Can you? Can you always listen to your conscience? Huh? No? The answer is no. Then you can't. But generally, you can. The book is interesting because he says, generally always. That's what he says. And then he even says, oh, really? Generally always? Well, that's the best you can do. The conscience is a gift. It works for us. To some degree, it works for the believer and the unbeliever. It does. Remember, we talked about not even encouraging an unbeliever to go against their conscience. We want their mind to be changed rightly by the Word of God. Of course, we call sin, sin. Not talking about that. But yes, it has to be developed. It has to change. It has to be calibrated and recalibrated as we discover more and more about God's Word. So how reliable is it? Romans 14, 22b there through 23. He says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. There's blessings that come from having a clear and solid conscience over an issue. Now, does that necessarily uh, mean that what a person believes is absolutely right and true? Doesn't do it, does it? So we're leaving room for the conscience to be recalibrated. He goes on and says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Remember, he's talking about eating food sacrificed to idols back there. Because the eating is not from faith. That's the issue. Are we acting on faith? And you know, we always act in our capacities in in church and in our personal life according to Scripture. We act based upon what we know about Scripture, right? That's that's the way we roll. That's what happens. I think 
black and white issues, like doctrine, doctrinal issues? I mean, I think those are easier to, to calibrate the conscience to, but it's the gray area. You know, like TV, drink. Yeah. Uh, it may be a personal conviction and a sin for you if you do it against your conscience, but for me, it's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got a whole whole list of those. Yeah. But I think we get callous yeah. to those gray areas where, where we've done it all our life and we really don't filter it through God's Word or even our own personal convictions and we just do it because we've been doing it our whole life. We're... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And uh, did you look at this last night? Because that's like on the next page. Okay. All right. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we're teaching similar things. No, you're right, and uh, but even doctrinal issues sometimes, there's no absolutes, even doctrinal issues, of course, uh, are not solidified in the minds of folks, okay? They don't, they don't know for sure. They know, as you say, what they've been taught. I mean, it's they know. things like Christmas and Halloween. And Halloween's on the list. Do you know what I'm saying? You just sure. we, yeah, it's true, and it is a huge, it's a huge effort. It is. He says, as a general rule, you should assume that your conscience is reliable, even if it isn't perfect. I mean, you have to, you have to allow for that. I mean, if you just want to be solely scriptural or spiritual about it, you can say, well, our sanctification is continuing. Well, that would be a true statement. <clears throat> And as it continues, there will be some modifications. There will be some modifications in the way that we think and the things that we allow and the things that we become involved in. Scripture alone, remember, Scripture alone is sufficient to adjust our conscience. We're people of the Word. It's Christ in us, which is our hope of glory. That's us. And that's why so many times our commitments as Christians, the stance that we take as Christians on personal and social and political issues separates us, okay, and makes us a target, a target, so it does. Remember, too, as we continue on, that your conscience is not necessarily the voice of God, right? It's two different things. It's not the Holy Spirit working in you. It's not. We learned back in the first chapter, it's a, it's a human capacity, it's a human faculty, it's a gift that God has given us, okay? But it has to be brought into subjection to Him. So he asked thoroughly, he says, is your conscience theologically correct? Is it theologically correct? And we have an example of this back in Romans 14 in verse 2. He gave some examples there. He talked there in verse 2, he said, one person believes that he may eat anything while while the weak person eats only vegetables. This was in Paul's day. We looked at that, a good example. In verse 5a, he said, one person esteems one day better than another, talking about the holy days for worship and things that were drawn from the Old Testament. He says, while another esteems all days alike. They had issues then. As things were changing, this transitional period, if you will, as the the church was established and so forth. And they're moving away from the dictates of Judaism and all those requirements. Much of that had been done away with. And we'll look specifically at Peter here in a little bit. 
In verse 21, he says, It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. That was the, the new rule, if you will. If you wanted to take one rule that will help me. Hey, Paul, give me something as I face all these things. Because I live in a place where people are constantly coming in. I live in a, a seaport area. I live in Corinth. I live, there's people from everywhere all the time. And I'm trying to live for Christ. I'm trying to, to move forward in my faith. And I'm constantly bombarded with all these other things. Pagan religions, Judaism, all these other things. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And Paul talks about thinking about the needs of others more than ourselves as we've touched on many times throughout this lesson. So he says, we who are strong ought to bear the scruples, is the word in my New King James, bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. And that word scruples just means weaknesses. And again, he's making the case we're looking at, on, upon the things of another. We're willing to sacrifice something in our life that we can really do without. doesn't really matter for the sake of a weak brother or sister. So again, the question pops up, are we willing to go there? Are we that concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ? He talks about the position of the strong here. And they hold, the, the, the strong person is holding on to a theologically informed position. That's the person who's described as being strong in their faith, while the weak is holding on to a theologically uninformed position. But he adds here, or the writer does, he says, but it's not a heretical position. It's just one that's not complete. Okay? It's not complete. A person doesn't understand everything they need to know about a particular thing. You know? So we've got to be willing to allow the conscience to be recalibrated in that fashion. You know, both can glorify God and both can bring dishonor on the Lord. The person who is weak and the person who is strong. There, there are problems at both ends, if you will. If, if you go to the extreme, a conscience that's so sensitive versus a conscience that allows anything in the name of grace, perhaps, it can be a problem. No. He asked us to note that Paul never explicitly commanded the weak in conscience to change their theologically uninformed standards. Just think about that. Those scriptures that we talked about, most of them centered around eating the meat and so forth. You know, there was no nothing out of Scripture that said, don't ever do that again. It's okay. You need to get over it. You know, you just need to understand that that's not the way it works, that there's no other gods and there's nothing wrong with that. He didn't do that. He talked to the Christian and he talked about how we know that and that's validated. Paul said, I know that. You know that, but they don't know that. And you can't convince them of that. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God will convince them. In fact, if they're convinced some other way, then they're still on a shaky foundation, right? They want to know from the Word of God. They want to be convinced from the Word of God. So, calibrating the conscience. Bring your conscience in line with and subject to Holy Scripture. That's what calibration is all about. Calibration. And its basic definition is talking about aligning an instrument with a standard to make sure it's functioning accurately. 
And without a doubt for the believer, that standard is always the Holy Word of God. He talks about, by example, he says, it's like a garden. The conscience is like a garden. And if you don't tend it, what happens? The weeds creep in. This is even in a, in a good conscience because this process continues on and on. The mature Christian must ask Christ, what, you know, what stays in my garden? What's going to stay? What I already know and hold to be true. How much of that stays? How much of it is to go? And hey, do I need some new things brought in to my way of thinking? And I began sitting down and kind of making a list of, in my own mind, in my own experience of these things. Some of them were kind of minor, you know, but some of them were of greater importance. Some of them were very doctrinal in nature. And of course, you know, I mean, you can go back and make the, the analogy with a person like myself who, who was raised up in, you know, Arminianism and was, you know, given over to that, mainly because I didn't know what Reformation theology was way back, but was just given over and was as devout as it could be, you know, and I was pursuing that. If I hadn't been willing to allow the Word of God to take hold and to show me more clearly the Word of God, then where would I be? Where would you be? This has to happen. It's a continual process. And now I, I, see, I see the Lord. I see what He's doing. And I mean, it's a loving process where He puts His arms around us. And to the extent that we know that we're given over to Him, I think the Bible says it this way in many places, it talks about giving Him your whole heart over an issue, right? With the whole heart. We've referred to, was it Psalm 119, mentions whole heart six times. Jeremiah mentions it. Coming with your whole heart, nothing wavering. That is what you want. You desire above all else to know the Word of God, to experience the fullness of His presence. He'll show up. He'll answer that. And He requires that of us. And I'm glad that He does. So the conscience is very much like a garden. We have to decide what stays, what goes, and what else needs to be brought in. There are reasons that your conscience may change, our writers add. And they're pretty obvious. Your conscience might become more hardened, as he says, and they're talking about a quote from Hebrews 3.13, it may be more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Our conscience can be hardened. And we know that. We saw a progression. I remember our writer actually went back and took all these adjectives, these descriptors of things that happened in the conscience, you know, and ended with the conscience being seared. And we saw that progression. That, that can happen. That's a very real and dangerous thing for us. Yeah. And he says in that verse... He says, but exhort one another, and we're talking about Hebrews 3.13. He says, exhort one another daily, talking about this matter, while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It speaks to the fact that this is an ongoing daily battle. It's a daily effort. It requires that we in faith, 
we who share the fellowship of faith one with another here in this place are to exhort one another daily. It again goes back and points to us looking upon the things of another. We're to help and encourage one another in this area. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever else. But, but me personally, although the sinning part, I know, I'll yeah. fight sin, is having a weaker, being a less mature Christian, and then trying to grow, my conscience tended toward legalism. Yeah. And so, learning to let go of things and calling things sin that were not truly sin was a harder battle to fight than to fight the battle of, well, this is sin, okay, I can't do it. So I think that, that we have to focus on that part too. Not, mm-hmm. not elevating things to a level of sin that are truly not sinful and then judging other people because we have elevated something to a level of sin that's not truly sinful. So yeah. calibrating our consciences and being informed through Scripture about those kinds of things. And being, and then when, when you've been always thought something was sinful and you come to see by looking at Scripture, that is truly not sinful, the first time you, you allow yourself to do that thing is still going to be feel weird mm-hmm. because you've always thought it as being sinful. Yeah. Yeah, I'll share something with you personally. I do not mind. I mean, one of the things on our list, if we get to it, uh, there's a number of them that he lists, just things that we're, often, that we're often faced with. And one on the list is, it asks the question, it says, do I watch sports too much? Do I, do I waste a lot of time or am I out of balance in that area? Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I experienced that last night. I mean, I had my lesson ready. I had it all studied up. I had everything marked. And then I wanted to watch some of the Georgia game. Okay, and the Georgia wasn't on. Do I? <laughs> Sinful anyway. <laughs> okay, well, maybe it is a big sin. Uh, but I'm, 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 just, I'm just telling you, uh, I had that in order, but... I think the Holy Spirit of God knew that I needed to even go back even further. That, that, I don't know, I think God was challenging me last night. He said, are you, are, here you are in the evening, are you looking at your day and what you need to do? You want to spend an hour and a half watching, or two, three hours watching this ball game when there's so much more, so much more. And I might take you know, something to run through my mind. Well, I've got enough, you know. I've got enough. I'm not going to be able to get through the information I have. What a bad attitude. I mean, give me all of it, okay? Uh, show me and trust God. Is that my heart's passion? I mean, that's the way the Holy Spirit deals with me over things. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Uh, I'm thinking about things like, um, okay, when, when they just first started the whole lottery. And they're yeah, to okay, to lottery, yeah. Okay. The lottery is Not on the gambling, list. and gambling is yeah. a sin, and that's pretty specific. But then if I was to benefit from using the Hope Scholarship in the future, and this is when I, my kids were itty bitty before I had to even think about my yeah. college costs that I okay. um, I had I had to wrestle with that and I had my my um, <laughs> pastor talk to me about how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Is is it wrong to use the Hope Scholarship because it's a coming from the lottery and the lottery is Yeah. Yeah. Are you supporting an activity 
Yeah, I always think about the time, and I always tell the story about the lottery. I was at a service station. I was waiting to pay for my gas, and the guy in front of me was buying a lottery ticket, and he had on two different types of shoes. He had one kind of shoe on one foot and one kind of shoe on the other foot. And yet he was, he was biased. <laughs> but I do the jokes. You just, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> But yeah, you know, I thought, and I thought about that. I mean, here's a guy who doesn't have his priorities in order, and he's holding on to this pipe dream, okay, and wasting his money here. Maybe his, uh, it's like old Jeff Foxworthy says, you know, you might know you're a redneck if your kids go hungry because you just had to have those Yosemite Sam mudflats, okay? <laughs> it's, that, it's that kind of a thing. Not, not able to hold on, you know, to sound reason like with money or whatever. Yeah, and it works in so many different ways. And I don't, don't underestimate those. Don't think, ah, that's no big deal. No, the Bible speaks about being faithful in small things. And is it a small thing when the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God is talking to us about a particular issue? It's not. And we're to be faithful in those things. And God challenges us to examine our heart and to see where our true allegiances and commitments lie. That's what it does. That's this wonderful work of the Holy Spirit which involves this calibration and recalibration of the conscience. Your conscience might follow the standards, this is what Melissa was talking about earlier, it might follow the standards of other people such as your culture or your family or even spiritual leaders at some time in your life. You just simply go with the flow without thinking about the issues. And we've all been there. Well, this is what I've always taught. Well, this is, or been taught, this is what my family has always done. This is what we do, and it seems to work for me. But does it have a root, you know, in the Word of God? Is there, is there a problem there? And then, of course, on a positive note, he says, and then your conscience may just simply become, we're talking about how it changes, it may just become more informed or, and be able to conform to the truth of God's Word. That's certainly a time when the conscience does indeed change. Yeah. So, sinning against your conscience versus calibrating your conscience raises a question. You know, what's the difference between sinning against your conscience and calibrating your conscience? Since both of them require change, and it's simple. Sinning is when you believe your conscience is speaking rightly to you, but you ignore it. That would be sinning against your conscience. And then calibrating your conscience is when Scripture or Christ or Scripture is correcting your misinformed conscience. Okay, that's calibration. The Scripture is correcting it. And I love the example. I wanted to spend as much time as I could just talking about Peter just for a while, even if I don't get to the rest of what I've got in here. Uh, Because we get so much from the Apostle Peter. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read a lot about him or uh, read MacArthur's book or other books. Was it 12? I almost said 12 angry men. It's not that. Uh, 12 ordinary men. Thank you. (laughs) That's a movie. 12 ordinary men. And talking about Peter. Yeah, good book. So much that we could could see and learn from Peter. Uh, the Lord used him and used his life, and the Holy Spirit has seen fit that we have a lot of information about him. It reminds me of a fellow that I used to work with. Uh, I don't think he'd mind me mentioning the name, Larry Watkins. He's just he's one of the funniest people that I've ever been around. He's just 
funny. I mean, here comes Larry. You know, you're going to be laughing. He was always poking at me. You know, back back in the day, he was a detective and I was a lieutenant, and we would from time to time our paths would cross, and he was always messing with me. And he'd say things like, "This is police work going on here, lieutenant. In case you're wondering what's what's happening, you know, he's just always going on. Just could just put you in the floor laughing and." But he would say something, he'd make a joke or two, and I'd be the butt of the joke. And he'd say, Lieutenant, I'm sorry to poke at you like this, but he said, there's so much material there. You know, he'd say that. And I'd think, well, Larry, you know, make another joke or whatever. <laughs> He's a great guy. Well, it's the same with Peter. There's a lot of material there. We can go back and look at his life. Even back when he, when he was walking on water, what do we see about Peter's personality and Maybe even a bit about his, his character. What do we see about him? Remember when he steps out on the water? Remember from Matthew 14? He steps out on the water and he just runs up and grabs Jesus and jumps on his shoulders, right? No, that's not what happens. What happens? Yeah, he jumped out there. He had enough faith to get out of the boat, didn't he? He did. He was the only one who could do that. But he, he looked at the waves, it says. He looked at the... The, the what ifs. He looked at the problems. He looked at the difficulties. So he starts out big and he winds up sinking. Lord, save me lest I perish. Okay. And even in the foot washing from John 13, what do we see? What do we see? Jesus says, God, I'm going to wash their feet. And he says, you ain't washing my feet. Okay. Because what did that mean? That's what a slave did. He loved the Lord. He was committed the Lord, you're not washing my feet. And then he flips again. He goes, he would go from one extreme to the other. And the Lord says, well, look, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me, Peter. He said, oh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Okay, let's just go to the other extreme. Okay, same kind of thing. Same kind of thing with, he pulls out his sword in the garden and he cuts off what Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant. Okay, Peter pulled out that little short sword and he was going for the guy's head. Okay. He wanted his head laying over there on the ground and the guy got out of the way and he whacked his ear off. Only later, what, less than what? I don't know. I don't remember the math exactly. A few hours later, a little servant girl puts him in his place, right? Even to the point that he's so upset. Have you ever seen people who get so upset they start cussing? They just lose it? That's exactly, that's exactly what he did. As Christ said, three times you're going to deny me, brave man. Three times. So one extreme to the other. And then, as Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, this is after the resurrection, after the ascension, this transitional period, God is doing His work, and He's still doing His work in Peter, you may recall that the first thing that he had to contend with, and if you're not careful, you'll read right over it, in Acts 8, 14 and 15, talking about the people of Samaria coming to faith. I just want you to think about its impact on Peter and his conscience, okay? The people of Samaria coming to faith. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, you think it was a big deal for Peter to go to Samaria and deal with the churches there? Yeah, it was. We know that. We can say that because of the problems that he had later. To Peter, Samaritans were still just like others. They were half-breeds and they were to be avoided. 
But he could not deny the evidence of the Holy Spirit. He was truly given over. But he's dealing with these things in his heart and mind. Acts 9.43, what does he do when he's in Joppa? If you're not careful, you'll read right over this. He stayed with a guy in Joppa named Simon the Tanner. Mean anything to you? The Tanner? Jews didn't do that. Tanners were despicable people because they dealt with dead animals and dead animal skins. And they would not have anything to do with them. Peter goes to his house and stays there. We know that things are going on in the mind of Peter. He's being challenged with all of this. His conscience is being challenged because this is like he says later in Acts 10.13 when he's, God is preparing both Cornelius, that, that godly or faithful centurion guy who's searching for the whole truth, He's preparing Cornelius and he's preparing uh, preparing Peter. Their lives are going to intersect. They're going to intersect. But he still has to deal with Peter. And he has to get this sheep to come down in a vision with both clean animals and unclean animals. He says, rise Peter, kill and eat. What's Peter's response? Once again, just like at the foot, uh -uh, I'm not doing that. I'm never eating anything that's unclean. The Lord God saying, what I've cleansed, Peter, don't you call uncommon. And then that had to happen, not once, not twice, but three times. Three times for him to get it. And we talk about the things in our conscience that are just so ingrained. Ingrained. And we see, I see, this wonderful, wonderful example here. All Peter knew was Leviticus chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. It told him what he could eat and what he couldn't eat. That's one of those kinds I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't being heretical, as we said earlier. He believed what he believed. What gets me about this and what I like to emphasize, and I'll finish up. Give me the 10 out or 20 out. Uh, it's just that the Lord knows this. It's, it says He knows our frame. He, he remembers that we are but dust. He, he loves and cares about us. That's why He deals with us in our sin like He does. And He paid our sin debt. But in a very practical way, in a day-to-day way, He understands us. It's a question about whether or not, and I'm back to the whole heart, whether our whole heart is given over to Him that's going to allow us to see clearly a new direction, a much clearer direction from the Word of God. That had to happen three times. And then he goes to Cornelius' house. He, 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 gets, he leaves Joppa, he, he goes back with them, and he, he goes in this Gentile's house. You don't do that. He had, to, he had to deal with all of this. How would he have ever gotten through this without just being faithful to the Word of God. And it's, it's amazing. And then we get this picture, not, not just that his conscience is being recalibrated or calibrated, but then it's recalibrated because what happens? Remember the Jerusalem Council from Acts 15 where they went down to Antioch? And we don't know what happened from Acts there, but Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, 
He's talking about, he says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He was guilty. He was condemned is what it means. And quite simply, when he goes back down there with the Gentile church and the other folks from Jerusalem are down there, he, acts, he won't have anything to do with the Gentile believer. wouldn't even eat with them. And Paul, just amazing, Paul got in his face. You know, you get the picture. Peter, how can you do this? You know, how can you do this? You're, you're warming up to the Jews at the expense of these Gentile believers. And ultimately, the whole issues about grace are at stake here. Because he talks there in, in Galatians chapter 2, I mean, beginning in verse 11, and verse, verse 20 is, is the verse that we all know, you know, where he cries about being, you know, crucified with Christ and all that. Paul says, look, man, you can't do that. Your influence is great in this matter. you got to get it right. And Peter did get it right, didn't he? And we know that his heart was right. It was being pulled toward God and he was open to change. And we look at his life and we see years, a process that took place. And we can end it and I'll end it by looking at 2 Peter. Um, it's the last chapter. I, I left it out on it. Would it be six? Or three. Chapter three. Three chapters in Second Peter. Is that right? Therefore, beloved, he says, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of Scriptures. A lot in that verse. He acknowledges his friend, the beloved Apostle Paul. That's what he does. He even refers to what Paul has done and is doing as Scripture. He lops that in there with... Scripture. Peter's heart changed. His desire was to be changed. But what a process. What a process. God's doing the same thing and wants to do the same thing in my heart and in your heart. And the question is, are we open to letting Him do that?